It's Friday, September 24th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, poet, playwright, and Pen America member Dan O'Brien takes us through his two latest books. His poetry and essays reckon with writing, creativity, trauma, and resilience. Then, tough questions. Pen America CEO Suzanne Nossel fields this week's trickiest questions about free speech. This week, a trio of Iranian writers, a book band rollback, and a powerful border image that exemplifies the need for a free press. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. Playwright, poet, and Guggenheim Fellow in Drama Dan O'Brien is a Pen America member and is out with a new essay collection, A Story That Happens, on playwriting, childhood, and other traumas. He also has a new poetry collection out now called Our Cancers. Dan joins me now. Welcome to the Pen Pod, Dan. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, you know, Dan, let's let's start. I mean, two, two books at once. Uh, congratulations. But <laughs> let's you. start. Let's start with your essay collection. You know, how did you sure. decide to, to to pull all these threads together into into one into one collection here? You know, the essays really developed in a, in a very natural uh, way. I've been teaching at the Suwannee Writers Conference uh, for about 20 years now, not every summer, but but many summers for 20 years. And one of the summers I had to miss was when I was in treatment um, for stage four colon cancer. And I was coming back in 2017, post-treatment, no evidence of disease, but still kind of um, you know, shattered by the experience in many ways. Coming back to the Sewanee Writers Conference, and I was invited to uh, deliver a lecture, a craft lecture, which I'd never done before. Usually that was sort of you know senior uh, faculty, and I, I suppose I had graduated to senior faculty. Um, Maybe because of my age, maybe because of cancer. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but I was uh, asked to deliver a lecture, and was terrified of the prospect. I, I love teaching, um, but I'm not. You know, I, I don't. I'm not a big believer in in um, uh, in rules or even you know so-called principles of writing. Um, so you know, I, this invitation to read was a challenge, and and I want to approach. Uh, you know, the craft of playwriting from a very personal perspective. And so that meant for me at the time that I had to, I had to also write about, you know, playwriting and writing in general from the perspective of a, a cancer um, survivor. So, um, you know, the, the first essay is, was the first lecture I delivered in 2017, uh, which is called Time and the Theater and uh, looks at various aspects of craft really in that lecture. Um, and, and part of the the um, project for me it was it was sort of a, a, a secret that I was keeping um, was was the ch- this sort of challenge I guess you know that if I was still alive the next summer uh, I would hopefully write another lecture about another approach or another aspect of playwriting uh, mm-hmm. and again probably in relation to my uh, survival and recovery and reemergence from cancer and um, you know knock on wood now that's been uh, five five summers. Uh, this so so about a year ago the book came together because the, the publisher in the UK was interested in publishing the first four essays together uh, and then Donkey Archive Press in the US was interested in bringing it out um, just a few days ago in September so it was a very natural um, process and uh, but you know on a deeper level the the lectures were an opportunity for me to uh, re-examine you know who I was you know a big a big uh, a fundamental uh, 
uh, theme in the collection is the idea that trauma forces reinvention of identity. You know, it, it's, it uh, sort of shatters your life. It changes who you are, obviously. Some of that is passive. Uh, some of some aspects of trauma obviously happen to you. Um, some, some uh, you know, results of trauma have to, are much more creative and constructive um, in terms of trying to discover who you're going to be um, as an individual, and in my case, as a, as a writer uh, post-cancer. Mm -hmm. So it's an ongoing uh, process. The book, I think of in many ways, is almost like a part one. Uh, it doesn't, it's not exhaustive. It's, it's quite short. It doesn't uh, approach every aspect of playwriting. Uh, but no, in many ways, that's not the point. It was, um, it was an attempt to sort of um, react to, uh, to the personal uh, drama and trauma in my life as I re-examined and, and maybe reinvented uh, my idea, my ideas of myself as a playwright. Yeah, I mean, that idea, I mean, the, the trauma changes who you are so much in, in this collection. And of course, with your 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 illness, your your wife also suffering from cancer around the same time, you you do get to in the in the collection, the pandemic in this past year. And obviously, mm -hmm. everyone has experienced this pandemic in, in different ways. Um, but those ideas of, of trauma, but also resilience and transformation, you know, how do you think, how do you think this kind of text will be viewed, you know, at this stage in the pandemic? I, I hope people can relate to it. Um, yeah, just in terms of, you know, we've all been through and are going through a, a medical trauma and existential trauma. Some people have experienced in a much more direct way uh, than others. But, you know, I remember when um, the pandemic began seeing everyone in masks for the first time, feeling like the world was suddenly in cancer treatment. Uh, you know, there, there, there was just this sense that what I had been through, my wife and I had been through um, five years previously, was suddenly in some sense happening to everybody. Um, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I can't help but see a lot of uh, resonance and parallels between our experience and um, cancer or anyone's experience with a, a medical trauma and uh, what we've all been going through with, with COVID. I, you know, I hope people um, can relate to that idea of uh, reinvention, you know, looking for, I mean, it, so it sounds uh, toxically positive to say, look, looking for the, uh, the positive aspects of a trauma. But, I, you know, for me as a writer, as an artist, it's about looking for meaning, you know, trying to, to shape uh, meaning uh, out of the chaos of cancer or the chaos of a, of a pandemic, you know, to, uh, trying to um, to create and trying to connect, you know, uh, again, mm -hmm. just writing both of these books. What was so important to me was was to find a way to transmute the trauma to us to some degree um, by uh, communicating to other people. With the poems, they were first written just for my wife, you know, trying to to reach her. Uh, she was diagnosed with cancer first. I was caring for her. On the last day of her treatment, I was diagnosed uh, with colon cancer. So we uh, seamlessly transitioned roles. Um, but wow. by extension, I hope both of these books can can um, uh, maybe in some way, you, you know, comfort some people who are going through something similar. Um, you know, that's that that can sound grandiose, and I don't mean it that way. But I I, I, I think with cancer, especially, it's a taboo in so many ways. Um, and we hear so often only or mostly the stories of people who, who don't survive. Uh, and uh, it's important to, to me, it has always been important to me with everything I've written, whether writing about uh, child abuse in my childhood, uh, writing for years I wrote 
worked with a war reporter named Paul Watson and uh, trying to adapt his work for the stage and in, uh, into poetry uh, in terms of writing about some of some of the war zones that he's been to. Um, you know, it's so important to me to push through uh, the taboo of, of what we shouldn't speak about and can't speak about or feel we can't speak about. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you use that phrase. Uh, I wrote it down, toxically positive. Uh, <laughs> right. I think that there is this, I mean, you know, as you say, we don't necessarily hear always the stories of surviving. We hear about loss and grief. And obviously you uh -huh. contend with all of that and all of this work, but but there is this like resounding sense of of optimism. Is that is that fair to say? That's I mean, that's that's wonderful to hear. I think it is. I think it's absolutely <laughs> Fair, you know, I, I try to um, I try to accentuate that when I talk about the books, and and I hope people don't think I'm trying to hit that too hard because of course both books try to look squarely at um, uh, you know the, the 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 stress and the the risk and the danger um, of of severe illness, but uh, but they're both acts of of love, you know, they're both gestures mm -hmm. um, again of of connection. Uh, you know, we were helped. My, my wife and I have talked a lot about this. We were helped uh, in terms of finding our optimism. Well, two things. One, because we've been lucky so far. It's, it's easier to be optimistic now when we both have no evidence of disease um, than, than it was five or six years ago in the midst of, of treatment. Um, so that's, that's one way in which it's a little bit easier to be optimistic. And maybe the essays over the years post-treatment have become maybe infused with some more some more hope um but we were certainly uh blessed to have a young daughter to to uh to live for and to um you know to to see our our hope embodied in she she was a year and a half when my wife was diagnosed um uh, so she she was too young to really understand what was happening during treatment um but she's kept us i think focused on the here and now in a way that maybe we wouldn't have been able um, to do without her. Uh, but no, I, I hope both, you know, I, I think that the, I hope the poetry collection is also, uh, you know, very much almost a collection of love poems, which may sound, a, um, you know, I don't know, a bit strange when it's a title called Our Cancers and is about a, a medical uh, catastrophe in many ways. Right. Uh, but we did survive and it's a chronicle. You know, the poems came as fragments over the course of that year and a half of treatment. And I've tried to in revising and shaping the collection, uh, keep the continuity of that trajectory, I guess, of, of finding out you're ill to, to finishing treatment with no evidence um, of disease. Um, so, you know, there, I hope within the, um, the trajectory of the collection, uh, you sense that will uh, and that desire to live and the sort of the luck and the grace um, that, that has allowed us uh, to come through it so far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let me just ask you just a, a question on the stage. I mean, sure. here we are, you know, in some ways is still unable to convene. And I'm wondering, you know, if you had an opportunity to, you know, you said this is just your first that, that mm -hmm. the essay collection is, is really kind of maybe a first volume. Maybe there's, there's more coming, you know, what do you see the second volume saying about yeah. with the stage and, and how it's transformed amid a time when we haven't been able to, to gather in the same place? You, the, the, the lecture I delivered this summer at Sewanee was, is precisely about that. And it's actually going to mm -hmm. be uh, published in American theater magazine, I believe next week. Um, so yeah, I've been like, like all theater people I know, 
grappling with that question of just how how are we coming back? We're in the midst of coming back as a, as a theater community and culture. Uh, how are we going to come back in a different way? Because obviously, like many aspects of or many communities in our culture, we've had a year and a half to reflect and to reckon with aspects of our industry that that we that many people are unhappy with. Um, so again, I think as, as you know, the theater this is again an opportunity. It's a post-traumatic opportunity for reinvention. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm fairly ambivalent at this point just how much uh, change um, is going to happen, you know, whether uh, or how soon or how fast uh, some of that change is going to happen. Clearly, people just want to get back to work and are getting back to work. You know, here in London, it really seems like the theater is up and running and, and New York is is, um, is getting there. And, uh, you know, um, I, I'm but I, I'm curious to see. I think people people uh, people I talk to are very split in terms of some people feeling like they want theater that is even more socially engaged because of what we've been through in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And then other people who seem to think audiences are going to want to go to entertainment and including the theater um, for, for purely escapist uh, experiences. Um, so, you know, I think the jury's jury's out in a lot of ways. I again related to where I was personally five years ago and feeling like it, it, five years ago, I felt an invitation to, to recommit to some of the core values um, I had as, as, as an artist, as a writer, um, and to think, you know, to, to, to think in terms of the long term. Um, mm-hmm. And to, uh, you know, so I, I think I would encourage, and I do encourage um, my friends and colleagues, you know, to think of uh, change in the theater as something that will most likely take more time than we'd like. Um, but I, I don't see how everything we've been through uh, won't won't alter again the identity of of the theater as a as a culture yeah Um, yeah definitely yeah well dan let me ask you finally what are you uh reading right now you know i'm reading a lot of student work uh because i am visiting faculty this semester at a low residency mfa program at goddard uh so i'm reading a lot of, of of graduate student work which it's exciting to me because I don't normally do that. So it's, it's kind of great to be back in touch with earlier career playwrights with their aspirations and sort of, you know, grappling with them in terms of just the question you just asked, you know, these, these are students who started an MFA program, uh, many of them during the pandemic uh, when there was no theater and maybe a feeling that there wouldn't be theater for quite some time. Um, so they're, they're asking some profound questions about themselves in the theater. Uh, I think even more profound than your average grad student. Um, and I'm also reading very closely a book called Borges and Me by Jay Perini, because I'm adapting it, uh, as a, as a play. Talk Mm. about sort of faith in, in the theater, uh, coming back. Um, that that's sort of my new, my new project. And it's a, it's a memoir slash auto fiction uh, by Jay Perini, who's an old friend of mine and former uh, teacher uh, about a road trip he took with the, the writer Jorge Luis Borges through um, the Highlands of Scotland in 1969. Uh, and it's, in some ways, it, it maybe is an example of that escapist impulse. Um, you know, I started it in the depths of the pandemic. So there was a desire on my part to escape to another time and place. Um, but it's also about a tumultuous period in um, American history and 
Perini was avoiding the Vietnam War uh, when he went to, to St. Andrews. And um, uh, so I, I think there's a way with this, I hope there's a way with this play to, um, you know, to entertain the audience while still, uh, you know, uh, finding some resonance with the, the tumult that we're, that we're all working through uh, right now. Yeah, certainly. Well, we'll leave it there. Dan O'Brien uh, is a poet and playwright and Pen America Award winner. A Story That Happens is his new essay collection, and Our Cancers is his new poetry book. Thanks a lot, Dan O'Brien. Thanks so much. We now turn to our weekly Tough Questions segment. That's where our CEO, Suzanne Nossel, helps walk us through the toughest questions of free speech from the past week. And Suzanne joins me now. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So, Suzanne, I want to actually start with Iran. Um, Every year, we uh, honor imprisoned writers at our gala with what we call the Penn Barbie Freedom to Write Award. And last week, we announced that we give the honor to three Iranian writers, uh, Bakhtash Abtin, Kevyan Bajan, and Reza Khandan Mahabadi. Can you say a bit about this award, why we give it out, and why we chose these three writers? Yeah, sure. We, this is one of our signature freedom to write initiatives every year is this award that we give out at our gala. It always goes to a writer or sometimes a small group of writers who are in prison at the time of the gala with the objective of spotlighting their case, making their names more widely known, engaging our constituency of writers and allies to campaign on their behalf and it kicks off a ongoing effort to try to secure their freedom and here at Penn it's as if we really sort of get to know these individuals we're looking at their photos we're watching videos of them we're talking about them oftentimes getting to know their close associates their friends their families tracking the ins and outs of what happens with their trial dates the prosecution their time in prison and they become kind of a, a part of our extended family. And we think very hard about where and how we can apply pressure depending on what government we're dealing with. And we've done things going to the United Nations, going to capitals around the world, where Washington had, can play a role. We've activated the US government, uh, mobilizing partner organizations, petitions, thinking about which writers have the greatest influence in that particular political environment, whose voices can be heard, You know, in some cases mobilizing, for example, the film community uh, around the case of a writer who was also a filmmaker uh, a couple of years ago, Oleg Sensov. So, it's a very big decision and undertaking from our part, one that we take really seriously. This year, choosing three Iranian writers for us, you know, their story is really kind of emblematic of what I think about as, as really what we do at Penn, which is writer-to-writer solidarity. They had taken up the mantle of leadership within the Iranian Writers Association, which is a body created for the express purpose of countering censorship in the, one of the world's most repressive environments and has been doing that work for decades with its members and leaders in and out of prison. The organization banned, uh, punished, and, and so for them to 
say, you know, I'm going to step in. I'm going to play a role in this body. I'm going to keep the work of the Iranian Writers Association alive to try to support other writers and create space for creative expression. And and the specific thing they were accused of doing, going and celebrating uh, at a graveyard, uh, some of the deceased writers in that lineage and tradition uh, bespeaks this effort to not just suppress today's voices, but to stamp out a whole kind of historical narrative that the independent writers of Iran have articulated and stood for for many years. So for us at Penn, an organization founded on the premise of writer to writer solidarity, they struck us as particularly deserving of this honor. That's, yeah, and I should mention, of course, they'll be receiving that award, uh, obviously not in person at our gala on October 5th. Right, um, we will be in person, but they sadly will not be there because they're in uh, in prison in Iran. Indeed, indeed. So let's switch over to this country. You and I spoke about a Texas book ban last week. This week, you know, we as an organization shifted our attention a bit to Pennsylvania, uh, where a school district there ended up actually rescinding an effort to ban a list of books many of them from creators and authors of color. Why is it, do you think, that books touching on race, identity, or sex continue to face such sustained opposition? And are you heartened that, in this case, it was actually really a lot of students who led the pushback? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting case in York, Pennsylvania, where there had been a list of books that was created to help share resources on issues of diversity, racial justice, uh, kind of cultural awareness. And it got sort of turned around where instead of that list of books being used to help guide teachers and librarians about what might maybe to share or focus on the classroom, it became a list of what to ban. And it seemed almost as if, you know, if you take them at their word, the officials of the, the school system were Uh, you know, really got confused and twisted up in this national, pitched national debate that we're having over how to deal with subjects of racism and the history of racial exclusion in in our country uh, within the classroom. And, you know, there is a feeling in some quarters, and I understand some of this, that yeah, there's some materials that go too far, that there are students who are being made to feel uh, you know, guilty and blameworthy for things that you know, they had nothing to do with that happened uh, you know, decades, centuries ago. And that some of the approaches that are taken to addressing these concepts are perhaps counterproductive, could boomerang and uh, lead to students becoming even more entrenched in uh, even racist or bigoted ideas. So that, you know, that's a legitimate debate, but what it's translated into, which is so troubling, is this impulse to ban willy-nilly. You know, these books, I mean, if you look at them, it's like the life of Rosa Parks and, you know, it's things that are, you know, that kids have been reading for decades uh, that, you know, tell these, you know, incredible stories that are a proud part of our history that celebrate uh, heroic figures. And so, you know, the idea that kind of caught up in this culture storm is this this huge 
swath of children's literature, it's really uh, sad and disturbing. I think, uh, you know, an illustration of the climate that we are in, where there people are acting reflexively, unthinkingly. And then, you know, when the students with, you know, all, a lot of integrity kind of brought this up and, and started to protest, you know, the school district kind of quickly admitted this is indefensible. This is completely baseless uh you know the, you know if it, it, you know there may be uh some things some approaches that uh you know are inappropriate and uh not things that they wanted to introduce in the classroom but you know this list of books had nothing to do with that and so i'm glad they came to their senses but i think it it, it is reflective of a, a troubling trend that we're seeing nationally about you know a very kind of uh blunt instrument being applied in censorious ways to address you know a, a problem that requires much more nuanced thinking so finally i want to actually talk about an image from this past week um you know as you know immigration officials have been attempting to turn back uh, many haitian migrants from the u.s mexico border uh a photojournalist actually got an image of you know a government agent on horseback grabbing the shirt of a man who appeared to be fleeing food in his other hand. Um, you know, how do you think images like this and, and the freedom to capture images like this shape public opinion and, and in turn public policy? Yeah, well, it's a good illustration of the power of the press, uh, you know, the power of whether it's a photograph that shocks people, you know, and we can think of many of those over the year, the little Syrian boy, you know, deceased who washed up uh, on a beach or some of the, you know, the horrific images of 9-11 that we all had a chance to revisit over the last few weeks. Uh, and the ways that they do shape our discourse, our understanding of issues, our political opinions, our collective memory and you know a good news story can do the same thing by bringing to light uh you know a side of a situation that people haven't thought of or a human dimension or just uh you know a truth that has been uh out of view or kept from view and so you know for us at penn doing a lot of work on press freedom issues both in this country you know especially over the last sort of five years you know when there was a campaign under President Trump to threaten and intimidate the press, uh, and and now uh, around the world where we see a tightening climate of restrictions on media freedom, it's sort of a re reminder of what we're fighting for and the power uh, of the media and why it's so important and you know why it's so threatening as well because of course you know that ability to with the publication of a, a photo or a story sway public opinion uh you know change the political dynamic surrounding a given issue that's a lot of power and governments find that threatening and you know if you let them do so they will restrict and curtail it and so uh you know i think it's it's important to sort of take a step back and and, and reflect on you know, just what it is that at its uh, most potent level we are fighting for when we fight for a free press. Well, we'll leave it there. Suzanne Nassel, CEO of PEN America. She's also author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you.
And that's our episode for Friday, September 24th. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you soon.